Let's pray. Father, help me with this text. Help your people by this text and glorify Jesus Christ through this text. This you have promised you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. You can sit down. Have you ever been in a situation where you're daydreaming or thinking about some far-off hope or dream that you have for something to get better, for something to change? Maybe it's a restored relationship. Maybe it's for a certain pain to go away eventually. And then all of a sudden, your mind snaps back to reality. Um, And all of the hopes that you were thinking about in the future and and all of the good things that you were, were dreaming about seem to be a distant thought now. And you're confronted with the sober and and probably depressing reality of your present situation. I'm sure we've all been there in one way or another. And that's sort of what's happening in our passage today. Isaiah 9, 8 to 10, 4. We're bursting out of this uh, amazing passage of promises about the future, of promises of this son to come, of this uh, mighty God to be the prince of peace over God's people. And then almost immediately, with no transition... We come to 9.8, where we're brought back to Israel's present reality of sin and judgment and impending doom. And our passage today, honestly, is a difficult passage. At face value, just in this passage, there is no hope. There is no future promise. There's nothing good coming over the horizon. There's only judgment. And at face value, it's downright depressing. But we believe at EBC that every single word of this book, the Bible, is, is God's word to us, and that we can be helped by it and edified by it and benefit from it. So like we prayed and, and like we hope, we're going to look at this passage today, and we're going to be helped by it. So if you have your Bibles, if you're already there, uh, Isaiah 9, starting in verse 8. Our section that we're looking at this morning is a a poetic rebuke to Israel. It's a poetic rebuke to the northern tribes of Israel. And it's actually the beginning of a larger section that goes all the way into chapter 12. And we're going to get there, but today we're just going to get to the start of chapter 10. And like I said, this rebuke is intended for the northern kingdom of Israel, which might make us stop and wonder, okay, if Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom Judah... Why is he now prophesying against the northern kingdom, Israel? Remember, the kingdom split there. Well, there's two reasons for this. The first reason is just the fact that the same God of Judah is the same God of Israel, right? He's the same God over all the people. And if he wants to use Isaiah to prophesy to both nations back and forth, he can do that. He is the Lord. The second reason that I see is this. In seeing a rebuke and a warning of judgment against Israel, Judah's, Judah's sister, right, Judah's sister nation, both under the same Lord, they should see the warnings and the judgment coming to Israel and kind of get the memo and, and get the point and straighten up and stop their sin and see that this holy God is actually very serious about sin. He will punish sin. That, that might be the hope for Judah here. So in an indirect way, it is still benefiting Judah, or at least it should, right? 
My twin sister and I are the youngest of six siblings, and some of you know exactly what I'm about to talk about. You know the whole deal here. When you see your older siblings uh, getting spanked, you know that you'd better straighten up, because if you don't, you're next. And that's sort of what's going on here. Israel is supposed to, uh, or Judah, sorry, is supposed to take note and to correct their course because of the judgment coming to Israel in this passage. So this rebuke to Israel is divided into four stanzas, four judgments or, or condemnations against them. Section one deals with the pride of the people of Israel, right? their pride towards God and his discipline. Section two is a judgment against Israel's failure to repent and turn to the Lord who's disciplining them. Section three shows us the effects of the sin of the people, how it spreads like a fire and and consumes the land along with the anger of God. And section four deals with the judgment on Israel for her corruption and power, her social injustice, her wicked ruling and laws. So let's start in verse eight, section one, Israel's pride. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob And it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Now, all of these different names here, Jacob, uh, Ephraim, the inhabitants of Samaria, they're all just offhanded terms for Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, right? Ephraim's a major tribe there. Samaria is the capital. Jacob is another term for the people of Israel. And so the word of the Lord is falling on the northern kingdom. And notice here, Isaiah says the word of the Lord falls on the kingdom, right? It's not just coming to the people. It is, it's falling hard on the kingdom of Israel, kind of like a hammer coming down, which is how Jeremiah considers the word of the Lord. Let me read from Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine: Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? So why is God speaking against these people? Why is his word coming down like a hammer against his own people? Well, keep reading. They say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild them. We will rebuild them with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll put cedars in their place. So this is speaking of Israel's pride in the face of God's discipline and judgment against them, right? Because of Israel's sin, either through natural disaster or the surrounding nations or any sort of calamity, God's judging their nation and, and houses are being cut down and, and trees are being cut down and people are being destroyed. And instead of taking this as a note to repent and turn back to God, they're so proud and they're so ignorant of the discipline from the Lord who brought them into the land in the first place that they say, well, Lord, you cut down our, you cut down our uh, stones. We'll rebuild with even better dress stones. That's no problem. You cut down our sycamores, Lord. They were just puny anyway. We're going to replant cedars. We're going to build back everything better, and we're going to do all of this without your help. We'll do it on our own. So these people are self-sufficient and arrogant in the face of Yahweh. So what does God do to these people? Verse 11. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. So Rezin was the king of Syria, right? The adversaries of Rezin means the adversaries of the king of Syria. And the enemies of the Syrians were the Assyrians, right? So basically what Isaiah is saying here is that the Lord is going to cause conflict 
in such a way with the surrounding nations around Israel that all of the brunt of that conflict is going to fall on the head of Israel. They are going to bear the weight of all of the strife going on. They are going to be the ones at the bottom of the pile suffering for what the Lord is about to stir up from his hand. And this is all caused by God's anger against Israel's sin and pride. Verse 12. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. So again, the the nations on either side of Israel, all surrounding Israel, they're closing in on Israel, and this is a direct judgment from the hand of the Lord, and they're about to swallow her up, right? They're going to devour her land. They're going to devour houses, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, and they won't repent even still. And then here now, at the end of this first stanza, is a refrain that we'll see three more times after this. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So this is all a direct result of God's anger and judgment. It's not something that's happening happening simultaneously alongside God's anger and judgment. This is being caused by God because of his anger and judgment for this His anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still in judgment against Israel. And this term here that's going to keep repeating, his hand is stretched out still, can be taken in two ways. The first way is sort of legal or judicial. His hand is is upraised or stretched out still, ready to judge again, ready to judge Israel again, to pass more judgment and condemnation on her. The second way, and more likely is this. In the Near East at this time, this phrase carried this meaning. A king coming to crush his enemies would have his hand outstretched with a mace to beat them and to destroy them. And so now, Israel, because of her sin, have become the enemies of God. This is direct punishment from an angry king through his justice on these people. The Assyrians, the Syrians, The Philistines, none of these surrounding nations are the real threat here. Yahweh is the real threat. And these nations coming against Israel are just a mace in his hand to crush and destroy them. So this is the first section against Israel's pride. Pick up in verse 13. This is section 2, and now we're going to see Israel's failure to repent. Verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them. They were supposed to turn and repent. Nor did they inquire of the Lord of hosts. Notice it is God who strikes the people here. Right? Again, it's not the nations, it's God. And it's meant to lead them to repentance. That they're supposed to seek God and inquire of his guidance now. And they see his judgment coming, but they refuse to repent. They do not turn to the one who is striking them. They're going to go to some other God. They're going to inquire of of some other mediator. They're going to come up with some other plan without Yahweh's help. So what does Yahweh do? Verse 14. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm and branch, and reed in one day. So this is a metaphor for immediate and pending doom and completion from head to tail. Everything. The whole deal. God's judgment is going to be total. Nobody's going to miss out on it. And we see this play out in the following verses. Verse 15. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. 
For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. This is describing the total chaos in the leadership that is going to come upon Israel. The elders were supposed to lead the people, and the prophets were supposed to instruct the elders to lead the people even better spiritually. Right? And so as a result, this leadership structure placed in Israel by God mercifully that was meant to protect them and, and sustain them and, and safeguard them is now going to be their dread and become a harm to them. Right? Verse 17, therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young man, and he has no compassion for the fatherless and the widows. That's interesting. No compassion on even the fatherless and the widows, not even from God. The groups that he asks us to have the most compassion for, he shows no compassion for them because of this sin. Why? Why is God being so harsh as to just withhold any grace from even the least of the people? Well, here's why. Verse 17, the second half. For everyone is godless and an evildoer. Every mouth speaks folly. In other words, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even the widows and the fatherless, the whole picture. The elders, the prophets, the kings, the rulers, the counselors, even to the least of these. The poor, the widows, they've all turned away from God and they are not seeking refuge in him and they are getting further and further from him. And again, this refrain, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So there's section two. From the least to the greatest, everybody in Israel, they've all turned away from God. They refuse to find refuge in him. They refused him when his hands were stretched out in grace. So now his hands are stretched out in anger and judgment with a mace ready to destroy them. Now we move to section three. And we're going to see the effects of these people's sin in the land, the natural outplaying of how this sin corrupts and corrodes the land and what it does to the people. Verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. So the briars and thorns here that are being consumed by this fire, that, that's a metaphor for rebels, right? Remember Isaiah's common vineyard uh, analogies, right? It's supposed to be a clean, perfect vineyard from Yahweh, but there's briars and there's thickets and there's thistles and thorns in there, and those are the rebellious people of Israel who are, who are corrupting the vineyard. And remember, from what we've seen so far, the whole vineyard has become full of these, uh, of these briars and these, and these thorns. The whole vineyard is corrupted. Everything is corrupted. So, what is the fire that is consuming the people? What is the fire that is going to consume these briars, these thorns, these rebels? Well, in one sense, this is a metaphor for, for the self-corrosive nature of sin and the fast-spreading nature of sin, right? It's pervasiveness. It starts as a small flame, and then left unchecked, sin becomes a roaring forest fire. And isn't that so true about sin? Isn't that how all major and deep sin begins? I mean, 
How many times has just a little bit of lust unchecked turned into career-destroying adultery? Or which murder didn't just start with a little bit of hatred in somebody's heart left unchecked? And what total apostasy from the people of God hasn't just begun with a little bit of apathy towards God and his words and his commands? This is how sin works. A little flame left unchecked always grows and grows and devours and consumes the people. Verse 19. The sin isn't the only thing that's consuming the people. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. So behind everything here, the Lord's wrath is fueling the fire ultimately. And as we've seen, the fire is also fueled by the people's sin. So it's being fueled at the same time by God's wrath and the people's sin, and these two things go hand in hand. Right? Remember we saw in Isaiah 6 that God's judgment on the people was to let them sin, was to hand them over to their sin so that their sin could corrupt them and corrupt them until they destroyed themselves and went into exile. God's allowing this people to stoop deeper and deeper in sin is one of his fiery judgments that is scorching against the people. It's a perpetual cycle. The people sin. God's wrath is kindled, the people are given over to their sin, and the land is destroyed, and the sin devours it over and over and over. So what will the outplay of this cycle actually look like? What are the effects going to be on the land and the people who live there? Well, look at verse 19, the end of verse 19 here. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but they're still hungry. And they devour on the left, but they are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. So there's some irony here to look at, but first let's just see what Isaiah is saying here. So the self-destructive language that he's using here, right, they will devour their, the flesh of their own arms, that's displaying Israel destroying herself with sin. Israel's supposed to be one unified body, right? And instead of being unified and working together, they're, they're gouging out their own eyes and eating their own arms and destroying their own body, warring against each other. And the people are beginning to turn against each other because sin ultimately does this. It it comes in and it divides and it totally destroys. So this is grisly imagery for how serious and corrosive the nature of sin can be. And Manasseh and Ephraim were, were two tribes of Israel destroying each other. And at the same time, because of their common hatred for Judah, they also made war against Judah. So they hated each other, but they hated Judah equally enough to to team up a little bit against Judah as well, so that the only thing, the only unifying feature among the people of God here is just anger, hatred, sin. And here's the irony. Manasseh and Ephraim should be especially close, particularly close, because both of their tribes are descendant from Joseph. And beyond that, the the whole nation of Israel, northern and southern tribes, should be very unified right now with all of the surrounding threats that the Lord is bringing against them. They ought to come together for all of the things going on around them and be unified against it, but they're so blinded by their sin, and sin is so self-destructive, that they've decided to bicker and devour each other instead. 
And again, that phrase, the third time now. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. As long as sin is going to persist in the land, God's outstretched hand of judgment, of wrath, the mace of the other nations, that's going to persist as well. And so something I hope that we're realizing by now is that the Lord's anger here, his wrath, his hand that is stretched out still, it's not arbitrary. It's not like our anger. It's not uncalled for, right? Wayne Grudem defines God's anger as the intense concentration of his hatred towards sin. God must be angry because God hates sin. He is the only one who can be perfectly, righteously angry and do something about it without sinning. And it's all because he hates sin. So now we turn to the final section, Israel's social injustice. So we've seen Israel's pride, God judging them for that. We've seen Israel's refusal to turn towards the Lord who's disciplining them. They should come back to him, but they're not. And then we've seen how the sin infests the land and, and scorches it up like a spreading forest fire. And now we come to the final stanza, Israel's social injustice. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1, sorry. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and to the writers who keep writing oppression. So this is a reference to the people who are making the laws, who are making the decrees and and writing the laws, right? And with a stroke of the pen, when they write a new law, they're writing oppression for God's people. They're putting the low, the needy, the fatherless, the widows down here so they can step on them and raise themselves up here. The Mosaic law is a revelation of God's heart was meant to protect and tailor to and serve the least of these people. But what do these new corrupt laws from Israel actually end up doing? Verse 2. To turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. The rich in this society are feasting on the poor and needy because of their immense pride, their immense greed for wealth and gain and power, and they keep getting away with it, and they think they're going to keep getting away with it. But what does Yahweh say? Verse 3, what will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? Now, the ruin that will come from afar there is referring to the Assyrian invasion the exile of the northern kingdom, the punishment that the Lord was going to bring on the people for their sin. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Israel, you've rejected God. You've sinned immensely against him. He's given you numerous warnings to turn back to him. He's giving you kind and gracious discipline to come and serve and obey him. And you've refused to turn to him. And now your sin is burning up the land and corroding the land. And you are devouring yourselves while outside nations come to devour you. And on that day when they finally come to totally devour you, where will you go for help? You have burnt your bridge with the Lord of hosts. You have destroyed your connection and and your safeguard with the only one who can truly protect you, the Lord Almighty. So where are you going to go? Who are you going to run to? Because the Lord who was supposed to be their protection has now, because of their sin, become their enemy and their dread. 
continue? And where will you leave all your wealth? All the money that you've exhorted from widows, orphans, the weak and the poor, it won't be able to buy you safety when the Assyrians come and crush you and hunt you down. And when God's wrath comes immense and unstoppable against you, where are you going to hide your wealth then? What good will it do you then, Israel? Verse 4. Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners and to fall among the slain. In other words, all that's left for the people of God in this passage, in the final verse here, the only thing they have left to look forward to is to hope to maybe be able to avoid death by faking dead in a pile of other dead bodies. Or what this might mean is that they're actually killed and they do drop dead amongst the, the dead bodies here. But the point is, there's nothing to look forward to but judgment. Nothing remains for them besides judgment. And this is all the hand of the Lord against Israel. The Lord is using these nations, remember, against Israel. And why is he doing this? One last time, this refrain. For all this, for all of Israel's pride and all of her sin and, and all of her corruption and all of her refusal to repent and exhortion of widows and fatherless, the anger of the Father has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. That's the end of the passage today. So God condemns Israel's pride, their refusal to repent, their injustice, and all that's left is his wrath and his outstretched hand to judge and crush them, not as his people, but as his enemies. And there will be horrible, awful, terrible suffering when the Assyrians come and take Israel into captivity. That's it. We know that there's future hope. We know the fullness of that in Christ. But I think that we take that for granted too often. I think that, that we're always expecting, since we know that the hope promises, and, and we know that in the New Testament Jesus comes, that salvation and hope for God's people is always on the next page, so we never sit in the condemnation, we never sit in the understanding of our destiny without the salvation of God. We never sit in this sad reality. So here's something for us to think about. What if Isaiah ended right here? with God's hand stretched out against his people instead of for his people? What if the whole scripture's just dead stopped now? No salvation, no help. Because it could. God could have stopped the story here. God could have ended it with judgment against his people, the nations around them, and the whole world. And he wouldn't be any less holy. He wouldn't be any less good. He wouldn't be doing us any wrong. Think about a reality with no hope, with no Christ. Imagine the words of the, the common hymn, nothing but the blood of Jesus, but without the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? 
what can make me whole again? For my pardon, this is I see, nothing. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing. Nothing can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done, nothing, nothing, nothing. Without this blood and without Jesus, the light of the world, we are left in total darkness with no hope, no other side of the story, no bright future, absolute darkness, confusion, chaos, disarray. And the only light that we might see coming over the horizon is the blazing trail of the flame of God's wrath coming to consume us. And there are billions, billions of people in this world who this is the reality for. We found hope, but there are people who this is their whole existence, and then they will slip away into a Christless eternity with immense suffering and the hand of the Lord stretched out against them forever and ever and ever. Billions of people, no no access even for a gospel to reject, no offer from the hand of the Lord to even accept. Feel that and sit in that. That could be us. I wonder what the Lord might move us to do about that. It's good to feel these things, and I pray that that we can feel the immense weight of these things from time to time, but we know that God doesn't intend us to stay here forever and to sit in this hopelessness forever, because there is more to the story. And people, we know that Christ has come. And we do have forgiveness, and we do have an advocate, and we do have hope. Why? How? 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the mighty God, took on flesh, and he hung on that cross, and spikes were driven into his wrists and into his ankles, and he was jolted into the earth, and he was punished for our pride, our rebellion, our lust, and for all this, the Father's hand was stretched out still and his wrath was not turned away against his only Son. A little while later, Jesus, likely despondent, in total shock, unable to totally register what was going on around him, now suffering for our jealousy, our anger, our greed. And for all this, the Father's anger was not turned away, but against Jesus, his hand was stretched out still. An hour or two later, Jesus was likely beginning to suffocate. On a a cross, you needed to lift your body weight up and sustain it to even draw one breath. And eventually, Jesus became weak, and he probably couldn't do that anymore. So he's beginning to suffocate as he suffers for our apathy, our lack of rejoicing, our laziness. And for all this, the Father's anger was not turned away, and his hand was stretched out still. And then Jesus died for our sin. The Father's hand was turned against him as an enemy, not as his son, but as a foe. But then Jesus rose again from the dead, and he conquered and he swallowed up death, so now death doesn't swallow us up, and now our sin doesn't swallow us up like the sin of Israel swallowed her up. We have a hope in Jesus Christ, so we can rejoice now. No anger, no judgment. 
The hand that was stretched out against enemies is now stretched out, beckoning us to come towards him, inviting us to live at peace with him forever, with no warring, no anger. If we repent and believe, he is totally for us because Jesus took the outstretched hand of God at Calvary so we can rejoice If you're here, though, and you're either new here, it's your first time here, you haven't yet believed in the gospel, or maybe it's not your first time here, and you might be playing church, and you've not submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord, your master. He says that I do it. I believe him. I trust him. If you don't know Christ in that way, then I have a question for you straight from our text. Chapter 10, verse 3. What will you do in the day of punishment? To whom will you flee for help? There isn't anywhere else to go. The only safe haven that the Father offers us is Jesus Christ. Besides Christ, there is nothing but darkness and hopelessness. But we do have Christ. And we do have the blood of Jesus. And he has put away God's wrath from us. And now we can be found perfect in him. So now, EBC, after considering these realities, let's sing nothing but the blood of Jesus together with the blood of Jesus this time. With the hope that we have found in the mighty God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Praising God for his mercy that he did not have to give to us. He did not have to bring to us, but he did Like I said, the story could have ended there in darkness and he would be perfect and holy and done us no wrong, but he's decided not only to not punish us, he could have left us in a neutral place for a little while. He didn't just do that, but he's adopted us and made us sons through the blood of Jesus and only through the blood of Jesus. There's no other safe haven and he's going to glorify us and make us one with him one day to live with him forever and be in his presence continually. So we have such grace from him. We have such hope. There is the other side of the story for us, EBC. And now we exist on this earth to bring that to the billions of people who there is only darkness for. So again, we'll sing nothing but the blood, and remember, we do have the blood. For my part in this, I see nothing but the blood of Jesus. We do have a pardon. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so holy, and we are so far off from you without the blood of Jesus We are so arrogant in our sin. Father, how often do you strike us with your discipline and we just refuse to come to you. But even so, Lord, you pursue us and you find your own and you bring them to yourself through the cross. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't just leave us in darkness. And God, we just want to recognize as a church for you right now that you could have. The story could have stopped with Isaiah 10.4 with your anger not turned away and your hand stretched out against your adversaries. But instead you've made your enemies your sons and Christ makes the many righteous, Lord. Thank you. 
We praise you and give you honor for this, Lord, in a temporal way that can never match what is due to you. And we seek to do that now as we sing a hymn to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.